Today, we give a year-end review of 2020. We discuss the biggest lessons learned and the events of greatest consequences from the last year, all of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. We explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction and grace in our discourse. Happy Wednesday. It is our final Refining Politics and Culture episode of 2020. I cannot believe it. It's been a wild year. It's felt like a week and yet 10 years all in one. It's a very interesting feeling, (laughs) but in a lot of ways, it does feel like it's flown by. And I'm just so thankful that I've been able to share this year with you all. I'm so grateful for those of you that have been on the journey with me um, since early this summer when this podcast originally started. It's been such a blast to communicate with you all in this manner. If you are new to the show, my goodness, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope and pray that this show is a helpful resource for you. As always, guys, if you enjoy this content, make sure you share the show with your community. Subscribe on the podcast provider of your choice. Also, you can leave a positive review on Apple if you have not yet already. That helps the show grow tremendously with the algorithm there. Finally, if you'd like to donate to the show, if you'd like to financially contribute to the future of the show, you can do that at my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Hit the donate button. Thank you so much for those of you who have already donated in the past. Such an incredible blessing. Thankful that you'd want to invest in this journey with me. One more quick update for you before we jump into today's episode. Tomorrow, December 31st and Tuesday, January 5th, I will not be having Refining Politics and Culture episodes. I will be back next Thursday, January 7th. So I guess a week from tomorrow. The reason for this is because my wife and I are going on a little vacation. It's going to be amazing. We are prioritizing rest as we head into a busy 2021. There's a lot that's going to be taking place even in the first few months of 2021 in the world around us. And so we are going to start all that off from a position of rest, getting healthy before we head into the new year. And by the way, Merry Christmas. I hope and pray you all had a fantastic Christmas holiday. I pray that it was refreshing and rejuvenating and that it was a time of reflection as well on all that we can be thankful for, even in the midst of a really tough season. I know many of us had really hard 2020s, and I'm just so thankful that God has enabled us to live lives, and it's so difficult, and I'm learning how to do this every day, and I'm in no way a professional at it, but enables us to live lives that embrace gratitude and all that we can be thankful for, even when the circumstances around us look bleak, tiring, or really troublesome, even tragic. I mean, I, I, one of my favorite chapters of the entire Bible is Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are in the prison and their first response is to worship. Like, my goodness, that, that's the type of person I want to be. There's a lot that we could lament about in 2020, and it's important to have a space to do that. You don't want to d- ignore the feelings that we have or the pain that we've suffered or whatever it is. But to have the fu- for to let joy and hope always have the final word is so incredibly important and i've found that in this season especially gratitude is like the best medicine um so Hope and pray that your Christmas season, you were able to embrace some of that. If you have not, by uh, by the way, had the opportunity to go back and listen to my Christmas episode from last uh, Thursday, highly recommend doing that. I really enjoyed recording that episode, actually just keeping our eyes set on the main thing I think is really important. So anyways, all that to say, next Thursday, I will be back. We are going to get into a ton of current events. Today, we're going to focus a little more high level, get a little more philosophical, give kind of a year in review. A lot's happened in 2020. We want to take away some of the kind of key themes from the year, learning experiences. Next week, Thursday. We are going to go over the COVID relief bill, new coronavirus restrictions. January 3rd is actually the 117th session of Congress that starts. January 5th is the Georgia Senate runoffs. Uh, January 6th is when the joint session of Congress actually counts the electoral votes. So that's when a formal president-elect is officially solidified. 
A lot is happening next week. So January 7th, we're going to have a big episode. Make sure you tune in with me there. So like I mentioned, today I want to be a little more thematic in nature. I want to talk about some of the major themes that we learned in 2020 or some of the major learning lessons uh, or lessons learned that we can actually carry into future seasons. Again, I I mentioned this quote a lot, but Socrates said an unexamined life is not worth living. And it truly is one of my favorite quotes ever of any great thinker because if I'm not examining, if I'm not taking a year like this and saying, okay, what went well? What did not go well? Did I like how I responded in these circumstances? Did I like how I treated people in these circumstances? What can I learn about the world around me from these circumstances? If I'm not taking time to do that, and instead I'm just breezing on through, I am living in a sort of state of just going through the motions. And I don't want to do that. I want to live intentionally. I want to make sure that the future looks different than the past, that I am not repeating the same mistakes that I made in the past. In the same way, corporately, we should do that as a society. We should ask really good questions and evaluate so that the future is different than the past. We're actually not doomed to repeat the past because we're unaware of the lessons we could have learned in that season, if that makes sense. So that's the reason we're doing this. It's really for a purpose of evaluating. Finishing the year strong by looking back in a way in which gears us up and preps us for heading into the future. So here are a few themes. I think there's like seven takeaways from 2020 that I want us keeping at the front of our mind as we head into 2021. First is this. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to stress this. Gratitude. And here's what I mean. I think a lot of us feel like 2020 was uniquely uncomfortable. And while that's untrue, or while that is true for many of our lives, for the for the living society that currently exists, I think it's really important that we recognize this year was just a taste of some of the trials that generations before us have gone through for their entire lives or for really significant seasons that last a lot longer than a year. So when we look back in history and we talk about the Dark Ages, we talk about uh, the Spanish flu in World War I, we talk about the Black Plague centuries before that, we talk about um, entire societies that have been ripped apart by disease or by famine, entire nations that have delved into civil war or to genocide or in utter poverty. I, I think if when we remember those seasons – And when we recognize that that's happened, and then when we compare that in a healthy way, healthy comparison to what we're currently experiencing today, I think it brings us to a position of gratitude, of being thankful for all the blessings that we do have. I think 2020, if you just look at it through the lens of 2020, it looks really bad. If you look at it in the grand scope of history, I think we can see that 2020 can be used as an opportunity for us to recognize how good we really have had it. Because 2020... Yes, uncomfortable in so many ways and painful and devastating in so many ways. At the same time, there have been far worse seasons that have happened in human history. And our lives were really comfortable before this. So in no way uh, is that a good thing that coronavirus happened or that these lockdowns have happened. I've been speaking out against them for months now. What I'm trying to say is we can remember with a healthy dose of gratitude that, wow, we really have had it so good. I'm just so thankful that I even have water to drink, food to eat. And as I'm getting kind of squeezed by the world around me or tyrannical governors or uh, sickness around me, it's, it's helpful for me to remember this is how people in human history have lived their entire lives in different seasons of human history. So God, I'm just so grateful that I've ever had a hot meal. I'm so grateful that I've ever had a cold drink of water whenever I want to. I'm so thankful that I have a house over my head or I have a car to drive, whatever it is. I think coronavirus has taught us all a healthy level of perspective and gratitude. So that's the first thing. Second thing is this. This year has set so much in motion for the future. And I think it's really important for us to pay attention to. 2020 was a year that kick-started 
what we will see unfold over the next few decades. I don't say that lightly. I do believe firmly that there are a lot of people that have seen 2020 as an open door to enact uh, some really harmful agendas. And I think it's important that we pay attention to that. So um, first takeaway theme for the year, learning experience was a really positive one that we can remain grateful regardless of the tough circumstances we've been through. The second piece, not so great. Uh, I think that Nikki Haley mentioned this well. She said that the year 2020 was essentially the year that socialism went mainstream, meaning large government takeover of entire industries or ways of life. And I think that's spot on. I think countries around the world are seeing that. I think we're seeing that in the rollout of plans like the Great Reset to have a global reset of the way in which we do things to remake capitalism with these global stakeholders that are partnered with governments in order to essentially forcibly change the way that we do most everything from top to bottom, top to bottom. I think 2020 was the year that kickstarted a lot of that. I also think that there were a lot of nefarious intentions behind utilizing the coronavirus for political aims this season. That's really important that we pay attention to because I think, again, for a lot of people, they saw 2020 and the coronavirus pandemic as an open door. There are a lot of people in power that will see challenges as an opportunity to serve people more. There are also a lot of people in power that don't have good intentions that see catastrophe as an opportunity to enact their political agenda. Many politicians in the past, including Hillary Clinton most recently, said, never let a good crisis go to waste. There are a lot of politicians that see crises as an open door to come in and clean up in a way in which creates the world that they want to see. And not all the time is the world they want to see something that we should actually seek after. So I think that's really important to recognize that this year did set much in motion for the future. Um, and we will look back for years and years and years and are arguably decades to come and say 2020 was the year that a lot of things changed. Some hopefully for the good, but other things for the not so good. And I think that that's something that we should soberly accept moving forward and then ask the question of, okay, so what does it look like for us to fight back for truth and for righteousness amidst a changing world? Third big takeaway in my mind is that 2020 revealed us. It revealed where our hope lies, where we stand on the issues, our worldviews, what we'd be willing to accept. We we're asking questions like, okay, why am I really here? And and what is the role of society in, in something like this and a challenge that we're facing like this? What's the role of government in keeping people healthy? What's the role of government in general? What does church look like? Truly, what was church supposed to be in times like this? All of these are questions that we are asking in the season. It's a good thing that we're asking them. Of course, we wish that we would have woken up and asked them on our own prerogative instead of societal forces forcing us to ask these questions. But at the end of the day, it's good that we're asking these questions nonetheless. Far too many people have been on cruise control for a long time. And for generations before us, that wasn't even an option. Like People had to think about the reality of life and death. People had to think about, how do I respond when I'm not comfortable? Because again, for so much of human history, people just lived in uncomfortability. Now our lives have been so cushy and comfortable for many of us in the Western world that we haven't really had to ask hard questions. We get to kind of do our thing and go out to dinners and live life as normal. And you know, we just kind of vote for whoever because ultimately it doesn't really matter. And they just kind of spend our money however they want. And they're not really accountable to anything or anybody. And we just kind of accept it and then go on. And, and we don't really feel the weight of who we're truly voting for and the types of policies that we're promoting. And we just kind of go on business as usual. And we end up being really complacent in that place. And I think this 2020 year has forced a lot of us to get rid of complacency, get out of our comfort zone, have really tough conversations, ask really good questions about what we believe regarding the world around us. There's a, there's a phrase that I love, a little quote that says, when you squeeze an orange, you expect orange juice to come out. So 
when we are squeezed, meaning when we are pressured by society, when we are um, when we are backed into a corner by our circumstances around us, how do we respond? What comes out of us? Do I do I lash out? Am I hostile? Am I a fighter? Am I a coward? Am I someone who presses in and perseveres? Am I someone who goes directly to how can I change things versus how can I tap into God's resources to change things? Do I pray immediately or do I kind of seek back in fear? Do I just allow someone else to make all the decisions for me or do I really like to research for myself and make sure that I am making decisions that align with the Lord's desires? The Bible says be transformed by the daily renewing of our mind so that our minds become more like Christ Jesus. Am I actually doing things? that would make my mind become more like Christ's mind? Or am I just kind of going with whatever anybody else tells me to do? All of the tough circumstances we've gone through this year, all the pivotal moments that have forced us to ask these questions, they served as opportunities for us to figure out when blank happens, how do I respond? When trial comes my way, how do I respond? When something happens that I strongly disagree with, how do I respond? And I think that's a really, really good opportunity and a test for a lot of us. For me, it was. Man, I did not always pass. There were times that some stuff happened and I'm like, man, I just, I did not respond the way in that situation like I actually wanted to. I either shied back too much or I came on too strong or too aggressively or I, I, I sought the anger of man rather than the anger of the Lord because it actually is not a sin to be angry. The Bible says when you're angry, don't sin. Anger in itself is not a sin. God has anger, but the Bible says that the anger of man is not what God requires. So there's a, clearly a difference in between the anger that is justified, that's actually a, a human emotion and almost something that can spawn us on to pursue righteousness and fight against things that are not righteous versus a righteousness or excuse me, an anger of man that prompts us to lash out or uh, act in a way that is very unchristlike. So lots of opportunities there. We got revealed this year, both individually and then also corporately. I, I think that there are a lot of churches that got revealed this year. Like, what is your church actually about? Is it about coffee for an hour on Sundays to hear a motivational TED talk with a nice little music mixed in? Or is it a church that truly presses in in prayer in the midst of a really challenging circumstance? It is a church that actually prioritizes uh, the the health of the body and spawning the body on to produce good works and to minister the gospel to a hurting world, or is it a church that's really just there for comfort? And I think a lot of people have had their theology even tested this year or refined in this process, um, and had, it's forced a lot of people in a good way to go back to the Bible and just say, what does the Bible actually say? We've been living with how we think things should be for far too long, but now we're actually being tested. What does the Bible actually say about these issues? I think that's awesome. Fourth thing I'd say is this. This year revealed who our true friends are and who our true community is. I think in the politicization, the hyper-politicization of this year, there have been a lot of us that have felt like in the fighting for truth, in the pursuing righteousness, we have been very misunderstood or met with hostility or met with full-out aggression verbally or whatever it might be. I mean, my goodness, in starting the show, if you got to see some of the hate mail I've, I've received over the course of the last seven months, has not been much, praise the Lord, but I've definitely received it. And hey, no harm, no foul. I'm not going to call out those people's names. They, they had a full right to express their opinion. I'm so thankful that we live in a society where they can air their grievances to me and I can hear them out. And that's truly a blessing. So I'm not offended by that. But what I am saying is that we've learned in this season, who are your people? Who are the people that are running alongside you that will actually support your right to say what you want to say or believe is right, even if they maybe disagree with it? I think a lot of relationships have been tested this year. I've heard from so many people uh, 
both positive stories of how their relationships have grown as they've processed some of the big events of this year together, the election, the coronavirus, lockdown. Some people have bridged uh, the divide to have some of these sort of touchy conversations, and it actually goes really well, and their relationships grow deeper from it. I've also heard stories of people that say, you know what, I finally started to put myself out there. I shared my opinions as best as I could in love and got rejected or got criticized or uh, was downright assaulted verbally or whatever it might be. I mean, there, there are people that have told stories. I heard from one person who went off to college um, and had a great thriving community back home, went off to college, came back on Thanksgiving break, and the people that she thought were her friends, they had one political conversation, and that person said, I had no idea you voted that way. I don't think we can be friends anymore. I mean, it's horrible. And so people need to learn how to, A, uh, have really good, healthy, constructive conversations, even about issues of which we disagree. And then also, I think this year B has helped people learn who my friends truly are that will that will stick around with me, be intentional with me in relationship, even if we disagree on key issues. And this year, again, it's forced everyone to figure out where do you stand on stuff and really ask some good questions about what do you believe about the world around you? As we've shared those communications with other people and we've processed those conversations together, naturally, you're going to have some people that say, okay, I totally agree with you. Let's run together. Or you're going to have some people that say, hey, you know what? I don't agree, but I love you. And and let's figure out how we can continue to work together or live together and operate in relationship. Then you've got other people that say, no, you know what? I, I didn't know that's how you see the world. And therefore, I'm uh, I'm not sure that I want to be running through this world with you. And that's obviously, those are sad moments, but at least you know. Again, for far too long, we've just been on autopilot. We've just been sort of putting our heads down and walking through life. And this year forced us to ask good conversations individually and corporately or ask good questions individually and corporately. Another thing I think we've learned is that this year has revealed a lot about our institutions that govern our lives, meaning our political system, our political parties, our healthcare system, or our education system. I think we've seen a lot come into the light in this season. I think that's something that we can be grateful for because, my goodness, things are a lot more dysfunctional than I think a lot of us realized before this year. Our system is deeply broken. I've, I've gone a lot into this over the last two weeks regarding how our government spends our money, our money, taxpayer money. And it's amazing that they've done this for years, and yet people just really haven't cared until this year. And so, hey, I'm, I'm bummed that people didn't care before this, but at the same time, amen, at least people are caring now. At least people are now asking, wait, why do we spend $700 million in Sudan? Why do we spend over a billion dollars in Egypt? Why do we exactly we do, do that? Like Flint, Michigan still doesn't have good water. Like why, why are we taking care of all these other countries before we're even making our own room first? Like make our bed before we go out and try to change the world. There's a great thinker, Jordan Peterson who says, before you change the world, make sure your room is nice and tidy. And his point was, who are you to think you can go change the world if your own home is in shambles? In the same way, Mother Teresa said, you want to change the world, go home and love your family. It all starts at home. In the same way, why would we think nations are any different? Why would we go try to invest a billion dollars in Egypt when we have so many issues here at home that we have not taken care of? Why are we pushing for open borders to invite more and more people very void of transparency into our country, assuming that that will somehow help them. Why would, why would we assume that? Our house is not in order yet. 
And that's why, gosh, I've been really thankful for President Trump. He hasn't always been perfect. But man, one thing he has done, he has been very America first in his policy. He has said, why on earth are we selling ourselves out to China? We have so much to take care of at home. Why are we giving money to all these foreign nations? We have so many issues at home. Let's start here. Let's focus on America first. That way, not only can we be best for our citizens, for our fellow brothers and sisters here in our neighborhoods, we can also be best for the world around us. We are no good to the other nations unless we are first good enough to ourselves, to where we can take care of ourselves and our own people aren't suffering. We've learned that. We've also learned how broken our two parties are. Honestly, right now, our two parties, Democrats and Republicans, are going through ideological civil war. The Democrats are going through a progressives versus globalists sort of battle. The AOCs and, and Bernie Sanders versus the Joe Bidens and Kamala Harris's, they are going at an ideological civil war right now related to the future of the Democratic Party. And right now, it looks like the globalists are winning. It looks like the big corporation, media mogul, technocrat, Silicon Valley Democrats are winning, which is the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris types. And this is also the big money Democrats as well that have kind of seem to be winning this this ideological side right now. This is the Nancy Pelosi's, the Gavin Newsom's, for example, sort of Bay Area. Another example of evidence for this is the fact that in, in the Senate races right now, the Democrats are gaining far more of their money fundraised from California than they even are from Georgia. And these two Democratic senators are running in Georgia, which I think is a total sham. Um, I think it's wild that California is contributing the majority of their funds to win a Georgia Senate race. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, the Republicans are going through the same thing on the other side of the aisle. They are in their own ideological civil war. You've got sort of the economic populist or economic nationalists on one side that are very focused on America first policy, making sure that American manufacturing is taken, play, taken, taking care of, very focused on the working class in the United States, making sure that you're building that middle class strong, supporting small business. Also, they're engaging in the culture war. So they are really trying to preserve the nuclear family. They're seeking for something to conserve. A lot of conservatives on the other side are really just focused on fiscal conservative, uh, fiscal conservatism. So they're vo very focused on the national debt. Uh, they're not as concerned about China because they're very integrated with the multinational corporations. A lot of money on the Republican side is over here, whereas the sort of populist movement's a little more grassroots in nature. I align more with the first. Um, I, I do believe, like I mentioned earlier, that America should focus on preserving American interests here before we worry about saving the world. And I think that our greatest threat is China, which the other side of the Republican Party has often neglected. And I think it got us into a lot of the trouble that we're facing today. I also think that the, the sort of just fiscal conservatives uh, have, or sort of libertarian and culture Republicans have, I respect a lot of them, but for a long time, they've just abdicated their role to the rest of society. And therefore they've allowed for progressive culture to create and win the culture war rather than conservatives that actually value family and faith and Judeo-Christian values. And I think that there's a new breed of conservatism rising that actually wants to preserve those values. So you've got that on that side. So on, on the sort of populist side, you've got the Matt Gates, the Josh Hollies, even the Donald Trumps. On the other side, you've got uh, the people like Mitt Romney, Ben Sasses, John Kasich. You've got those sort of conservatives. And if you're a conservative, you probably see some pros and cons in both. Uh, you probably lean one way more or the other. Um, you may say, no, I lean more toward a John Kasich, uh, more of a sort of corporatist than I do the sort of grassroots uh, conservatism, small business. Like I, you know, you may feel a different way. On the Democratic side, if you're a Democrat, you probably lean more toward progressive or more of the corporatist globalist, um, but you still probably see pros and cons on both sides. And this is something that we are analyzing in this season. And at the end of the day, it's only revealed the fact that our two-party system is not working. We have so many Americans that say, gosh, I just, I don't feel like either of those parties just in name only represents me. 
Well, no wonder, because even within the parties, there are so many vastly different worlds. I mean, Mitt Romney voted to impeach Donald Trump. That's wild. We don't talk about that. You have Lisa Murkowski and Josh Hawley in the same party, which is crazy. So on the same side, or on the other side, Democrats, you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the same party as a Chuck Schumer. That's wild. But that's exactly uh, how our two-party system has unfolded, and we've noticed it in the fullest extent this year. Another thing we've learned in this season that I think is really interesting we have learned how destructive it was for the church to abdicate its role to culture decades ago. So I read a lot of middle 20th century literature, and and I find it a really interesting time in human history. There was a chunk of the church in the 60s, 70s, 80s, not every church, but a lot of churches in the West that basically said, you know what? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's not really focus on it. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to change it. Let's just preserve our values within our church bodies. We'll send our kids on mission trips once a year to make us feel like we're still discipling the nations. But at the end of the day, let's just kind of stick to our holy huddles and let culture do their thing. And that was a really destructive really destructive move, honestly. And I'm not saying all the intentions were poor. There were a lot of people that really meant well trying to uh, make good decisions, but instead were very misguided in their approach and actually built a theology that it was holier somehow to get yourself as out of the world as possible when God explicitly said, be in the world, but not of it. So I, I need to be influencing the world far more than it influences me, but that doesn't mean I just ditch the world and only spend time in my church. I just, okay, you know, here's what happens. Here's an example. A lot of people today, they get a calling on their life. They feel like, man, I found the Lord. I'm so excited about my walk. I must be called to be a pastor. If far too many people feel that way, where are the Christian CEOs? Where are the Christian business leaders? Where are the Christian politicians? And in fact, some churches today that are left wondering, where on earth are our righteous leaders? Why don't we have more Christian politicians? Those same churches are the churches that actually believe in their theology that it's unholy to go be a politician. So it's this very double-sided, you're like, wait, you want righteous leaders, you, you complain about culture, yet when somebody actually sticks their necks out and goes to run for something or, or is willing to engage in the business world to try to uh, run a company on Christian values, you criticize them. You look down upon them. You don't, you don't make room for that. And so, again, this is not every church, not every Christian community, but we saw a lot of Christian communities in the 20th century essentially say, you know what? Nope, we're done. Culture, it's all yours. And now today we're seeing a lot of the effects of that. Culture has been run completely by a very anti-Christ spirit and agenda, a very, uh, very secular agenda. We are seeing the transgender movement pop up and a lot of parents are like, where the heck did this come from? The reality is this has been building for decades. There are people in the 80s and 90s in culture that made conscious decisions to eventually see male and female eradicated. They were in the shadows back then. They're up front now. There were a lot of young socialists of the 60s and 70s that are now the professors of today at liberal arts colleges across the United States. So we send our kids to great schools. All of a sudden, they come back socialists, and we're shocked. Well, it's because society has been on a, a very quick, rapid downhill over the last 40, 50 years, and the church has largely sat idly by and let it happen. So the world does not need—now, don't hear me wrong, because this could sound a little controversial. I don't mean for it to. Of course, people are called to still be pastors, still be ministers. That may be your call. Go for it. But the world, I would argue, does not need more pastors as much as it needs Christian CEOs. The world does not need more missionaries to Africa right now. The world needs more missionaries to Wall Street. The world does not need more uh, people that are, are feel called to just go spend all of their time in the church for the rest of their life. I would argue that the, the world needs more people that are called right now to D.C., to be on the streets of D.C., to go work for a think tank, to go uh, intern for a congressional official, to go influence those 
arenas of society where actually so many of the decisions that get made affect other parts of the world. And instead, we have, I talked about this in a past episode, the church has gotten addicted to cleaning up the mess when we could have prevented the mess all along. And so, yes, let me reiterate, people are called to be pastors. People are called to be missionaries. My point is, in fact, I'll, I'll give a little illustration to point this out. A friend of mine was at a ministry school a few years ago. It was sort of a ministry training for three or four months where they teach discipleship and get you kind of equipped in ministry to help people and serve them. Well, uh, the teacher one night stood up and said, this was probably a room of 70 people. How many of you are called to be doctors? You know, two or three raise their hands. How many of you are called to be uh, business people? You know, one person raised their hand. How many of you are called to be teachers? Three or four raise their hands. How many of you have called to be politicians? You know, no one raised their hands. Then this teacher asked, how many of you are called to be missionaries? All of them raised their hands for the most part. And the teacher came back with a point, said, this is, this is a, your intentions are noble, but your pursuit is off. The world does not need all of you to just go jump onto the mission field. What if the mission field is your community? What if your mission field is the local accounting firm? What if your mission field is DC? What if God is actually calling you to stop riding off DC as just an unholy arena and instead go influence it? What if God is calling us to be a voice on social media? What if God is actually calling you to go out on Wall Street and to change that thing and make it look more like the kingdom of God. The 1% is the most unreached people group on the planet, I'm sure of it, because they don't think they need God. So go out and reach those people. But instead, the church has sort of written them off. And I think that's a really big bummer. We've recognized that in this year because we've seen all these cultural downfalls take place seemingly rapid around, around us. We've seen the gender conversation get brought up like never before. We've seen people believe in crazy worldviews. We've seen people embrace critical race theory and, and socialism. 55% of millennials think socialism is, is favorable. We have a lot of even Christians who are saved. They are, they are saved by the grace of God, and yet they believe nut stuff about the world around them. So you can actually be saved and still believe crazy things in your worldview. That's why the Bible says, be daily transformed by the renewing of our mind. We want the mind of Christ. You can be saved and still have your fleshly, not very smart mind. I can still be saved and be preaching critical race theory and think that that's a good idea. I'm completely lost, have no idea what I'm talking about. I have a complete disregard for actual history, yet, you know, you can still be saved. Your heart can be belong to the Lord. That's why God not only wants our heart, of course, that's the most important, but he also wants our head. He also wants our minds to be refined so that we're thinking about things like Christ would think about things. We are looking at the world the way Christ looked at the world. And this year, we've learned that people's worldviews, even a lot of Christians, are all over the map. And a lot of them can't even back up the way that they feel the way that they feel. They just feel it so strongly, and culture's telling them to, and they've just kind of been sucked in because culture has been pastoring this generation, not the church. And I think that's kind of the big takeaway there. All right, two more. Next one is this. We have learned in this season how much local politics truly matters. Here's an example. I'm currently in Florida right now visiting my family for Christmas. It's wonderful. This is a free state. It's truly incredible. We are, we are living life like normal. And it doesn't mean that the coronavirus isn't serious. It doesn't mean that it's not still going on. It certainly is. And, and people that need to be taking precautions that are in more high-risk chunks of the population are doing that very thing. Uh, but people are living and businesses are open and livelihoods are being preserved. Meanwhile, you have states like California, where I'm from, uh, that are completely shut down, have been for nine months, are in economic shambles. Their public health as a whole is a total mess. And on top of all of that, they have the highest case rate in the country, which only goes to show that the lockdowns are not working. So my heart is with California. I love this state dearly. 
I really do. I love my home. Um, but at the same time, my heart hurts for California in how we've been governed. It's been an utter failure in policy over and over and over again. And instead of recognizing failures and for our government leaders to be self-aware enough to course correct, they just dig their feet in further because they know they can count on people to reelect them. And this is why it's so important that people wake up to realize how important local politics are so that they're able to be held accountable, these politicians. For far too often, when people, the general populace in the country have thought politics, they've just thought congressmen or women or senators or the president. Many people, when they think politics, they just think the president and the vice president. The reality is your school board officials matter. They get to dictate a lot of what your kids are taught. I just talked to a family the other day in LA who is having to pull their kids from school because the curriculum they're teaching is teaching kids that their identity is based primarily upon what group identity they fit in. So they're not a child of God, first and foremost. They're a white kid, first and foremost. That is what this school district, I won't name which one, is teaching fourth graders. It's remarkable. But that's that's school board. They are the ones that are putting forth these emails to these parents, teaching them that this is what they're going to pursue in the next year. They're voting on how to teach your kids. And yes, of course, there's state influences on curriculum as well. But the nitty gritty is your it's the it's the local school boards. How much are they compromised by the teachers unions? How much are they? Because that's something to really keep into account if you want to continue sending your kids to school and not have it be a complete mission field where they feel like they're just an outsider and conservative values or Judeo-Christian values are so few and far between. We also learn city councils and county supervisors. In this season, some counties are living life and businesses are thriving. Other counties are in utter despair because they've been ruled by people that have very different views about what it looks like for the government to enact powers. I actually got my haircut just a few weeks ago, and I was talking to this hairdresser who proudly voted for Gavin Newsom in 2018. She voted for Hillary in 2016. And with tears in her eyes, I'm not kidding, as she cut my hair, she told me she so deeply regrets her vote. She can't believe she voted for Gavin Newsom in 2018 because she said she had no idea she was voting against herself. She didn't know she was voting against her own interests. It doesn't mean we hate Gavin. doesn't mean we don't pray for him. It does mean that the policies that he's promoted have destroyed her business and her livelihood, and her family's livelihood. And so when I'm at this little barber shop and she's telling me that she recognized for the first time in her life the power of her vote, she just thought, oh, it's a Democrat. You know, I think they're a little more caring of people. I think they're just, you know, that's kind of the stereotype. So I'll just, uh, I'll just vote D. You know, I'll vote blue no matter who and I'll put in Gavin into office. She had no idea that the other candidate that was running at the time would have operated in this season far different and maybe would have uh, kept California from falling into not only the coronavirus pandemic situation, but also the holistic public health crisis that came along with these lockdowns. So our votes matter. Local politics matter. And I would even encourage people, get involved with your local school boards. Run for your local city council. Even if you live in a little small town, you have no idea the decisions that get made on a local politics level. And we've learned in this season how many truly do. You can drive just one town over and have an entirely different way of life. And I think that's woken a lot of people up in this season, awakened a lot of people in this season. All right, the final takeaway from 2020. Again, this list is not exhaustive, but this is the last one I'm going to mention for today. We have to engage. We cannot disengage. I see a lot of people that feel tempted. Okay, you know, 2021's coming around. We're not in election year anymore. Let's just kind of put our head down, not focus too much on this. And I, I'm, I'm just going to kind of go through the motions for the next four years, just coast and then wake me up when the next election cycle gets, cycle gets here and I'll start caring about politics or culture again. That is not a recipe for success. It is a recipe to, a recipe to be an uninformed voter. It is a recipe to be an uninformed participant in society. We cannot be productive, righteous participants in society if we don't know what we're doing 
or if we don't know what's going on around us. So I saw a lot of people just start to care about politics this year or four years ago. And because everybody cared about politics four years ago, it kind of one thing you got to give Donald Trump for. He kind of popularized politics. Even if you loved him or hated him, he was someone who made politics really popular. People really started paying attention. The downside to that is a lot of people did so without any historical context or they did so only watching CNN and really didn't know the grasp of the the issues at hand. And the media pundits would then play on that purposely in order to mislead and deceive in order that people would vote along their ideological agendas and aims. Um, So. For example, you had a lot of people that voted for Biden that have no idea who he was as a vice president. They don't realize anything about the Obama-Biden administration. Uh, They just voted for Biden because they didn't like Trump. They don't recognize how dangerous that habit is to build. But it is. It is dangerous. And we do not want to be those people. We want to know, here is what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I'm not going to have a concrete opinion about something until I've actually developed it and taken the time to do so. So... I see a lot of people that say, you know what, I'm just checking out till 2024. I don't think that that's a good recipe for success. The world is changing and it's changing fast. And I think we need to pay attention. Stay engaged. I know it's super hard because it's a volatile world and it's divisive and it feels messy at times. But my goodness, it needs people that pursue virtue and righteousness to enter the arena. Even if we disagree with other people that really desire righteousness and we're trying to figure out what that looks like and trying to dig through the scriptures together and figure out what would God have us do in this situation. It is a so worthwhile journey to go on. So those are my big takeaways from 2020. I hope that those resonated with you as well. If you have some other big ones that you'd like to share with me, because again, I know that that list was not exhaustive, email them to me. Uh, You can find my email at my website, refiningpoliticsandculture.com. You can go to the contact me page and you can send me an email there. Would love to hear from you. What was the big takeaway from you in 2020? Finally, I want to end this episode with the answering of a question that I've received actually a few times over the past few weeks. I was asked, Out of all the news that's taken place this year, in my mind, what was the biggest story? What were the biggest stories of the year? I couldn't think of just one. So I had to condense it to three. So here are the three. Nah, you know what? I'll give you four. (laughs) Here are the biggest four stories. It's 2020. There's a lot that's happened. I think I can uh, do four instead of one. Here are the biggest four for me. Number one was the ushering in of the Great Reset through the COVID-19 lockdown measures. And Great Reset is not a conspiracy theory. The World Economic Forum has become very out in the open about it, along with the partnership of the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the World Health Organization. John Kerry, who is uh, Joe Biden, if he wins, he'll be his climate czar, um, who has expressed support even as recent as a month ago for the Great Reset. I did an entire episode about this about a month ago. Highly recommend going back and listening to that because that that detailed um the, the reasons for which I believe that this is the biggest story uh, that we should be paying attention to heading into the next year, especially. So that's the first thing, the ushering into the Great Reset through these COVID-19 lockdown measures, the economic transfer of wealth that's taken place in this year, where we have seen the billionaires grow in wealth and mega corporations grow in wealth by the billions and even trillions of dollars, while small businesses have completely suffered. It's been this massive transfer of wealth wealth that's taken place under our watch through these lockdown measures and the destruction of small businesses. And I think that that is something that we are going to feel the effects of for a really long time. Second story is this, China's growing influence over the world. We've talked about it a ton in this show. Uh, We're going to talk about it a lot more in 2021, especially because there's aspects of China that we haven't talked about a ton that I'm going to actually devote entire episodes to in the new year, including their social credit system, which is being ruled out, which is rolled out, excuse me, not ruled out. And that's something that uh, is very dystopian in nature. It's very George Orwellian, 1984-style societal pursuit, which we'll we'll unpack. But China's influence over the world, they were the only major country in 2020 that came out in the positive 
in the green in their economy. They're the only country, major country in the world, that had positive economic growth in 2020, which I think is deeply concerning. And I think, honestly, that was part of their plan all along. I'm not saying we know how much of COVID was intentional, but I am saying we do know how much of allowing it first to spread around the world was intentional. And they sure didn't do much to stop it from spreading to other countries around the world, likely knowing that it would affect our economies in grave ways that we were unprepared for especially in the Western world, not just the United States. So that's second big piece. Third story is this, the big tech suppression in the past year, the rise of uh, technocratic authoritarianism has become a major issue brought into the spotlight. It's been building for two decades, but man, we have seen it out in the open with censorship out the wazoo this year. Um, they, Big tech has gotten very open about what policy views, what ideological views, what opinions they are okay with and which ones they are not. And they have no problem squashing the ones that they disagree with, even for the most powerful positions in the world, including the president. They censor so many of the president's tweets. Uh, they censor so much of the president's social media posts, ads he's posted. And I, I think that that's a very destructive attribute of society that has grown tentacles into nearly every facet of society in the last year that we need to be paying attention to as we head into 2021. Final story is this, is obviously just the election. There are so many allegations of fraud that for multiple reasons have still not been debunked. The Georgia video has not been debunked, no matter how many media outlets try to tell you that it was. We have irregularities and inconsistencies that have not yet been answered for. And this election was a total mess. Simply it was. The Director of National Intelligence has said that there was indeed foreign interference. We don't know how much. We don't know if it tipped the scales. We don't know if it actually would have resulted in a different result. We do not know. But at the end of the day, we do know this election was a mess. And the United States has intervened in other countries' elections that were filled with far less inconsistencies than even ours was. So the United States has intervened through the CIA and other agencies in the past in elections in Eastern Europe or in Central America when a lot of the irregularities that we saw on November 3rd related to mail-in ballots and uh, dead people voting and different things like this, these other countries saw those same circumstances and our government would intervene to correct the results or to help investigate or whatever it looked like. But in our own country, those agencies are not willing to do so. It's very interesting. And so this election will go down in history as a very weird season in human history. It'll go down in a very weird season as a very weird season in American history, especially related to the electoral process. Also, there are so many inconsistencies just related to voting habits that have not been answered for, because like I've mentioned on the show, I think a lot of media pundits are afraid to ask the questions. Why on earth did Donald Trump win 17 out of 18 bellwether counties but lose the election? How did he win Ohio, Florida, and Iowa and yet lose the election? Never happened in presidential history. How does that work? But the media pundits kind of just want to skip right on by it and pretend it never happened, say Joe Biden's your president now, you just have to deal with it, and not ask those questions. And look, I'm still saying we don't know whether it would have changed the election. What we can say is some of these irregularities that we've seen need light shown upon them in a way that is clarifying, that answers for why they are present, that answers for why did this happen this way. So many of the allegations of fraud have not been debunked. As much as the media wants to tell you that they have, they have not been debunked. They've just been ignored. Many people say, well, they had their chance in court. Well, no, a lot of these court cases weren't even about the merits of the case. They weren't about the allegations of fraud themselves. They were about procedural issues and how the courts actually saw their role in mitigating some of these uh, accusations or allegations or testimonies, affidavits, et cetera. So it, it's a really big bummer how all this has played out ultimately, but the election is not over yet. January 6th will come. We'll see what happens. Then I will formally, I will formally refer to someone as president-elect or not. 
Um, and then January 20th, we will know for sure who that next president is because somebody's going to be inaugurated. So uh, as of now, of course, it's looking like it'll be Joe Biden. It looks stronger that way um, every day, but we do not know. And I think, again, it was a mistake on the media's part to preliminarily and prematurely call a winner when it was not yet time to do so. The other big piece that we learned about these elections was just how nefarious the media's role was. I mean, they essentially were a Democratic propaganda wing. And they purposely hid stories that were harmful to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and they purposely promoted stories that would put them in a favorable light. And that had more influence on the election than I think any of us realize. We already, I I mentioned in that episode a few weeks ago that a large percentage of Democrats had no idea about the Hunter Biden story because the media and big tech partnered together to purposely censor it. And 9% of Democrats said that if they would have known about that Hunter Hunter Biden story, they wouldn't have voted for Joe Biden. They would have known that he was under federal investigation for business dealings with one of our nation's greatest adversaries. Hello, like they wouldn't have voted for the guy. But instead, they didn't know because media recognized that that would happen. So they covered it up. And that's just a really big shame. And we've got to figure out how to come against that in the coming years or else we will only see people elected that the media is happy with. And that's a really dangerous cycle to begin. So. Those are some of the biggest stories I saw in 2020, along with my biggest takeaways from the year. There's our year in review. It has been such an honor to speak with you all today. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you all again next Thursday, January 7th. It's going to be an absolute blast. We're going to have quite a lot to talk about. So make sure that you tune in with me for that. And then we've got some fun, exciting stuff happening in the new year as well. Expansions to the show, which I'm really looking forward to telling you guys more about in the coming weeks. As always, if you enjoyed this content, make sure you share it with your kids community. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Hope and pray you have a great weekend and great start to your week next week. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert.